Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning. We are uh, in our first week of our Advent series, Awakening Wonder. And in case you have not woken up to the wonder, hopefully some Kanye overlooking some scenic scenery will do it for you. You should be plentifully awoken at this point. Um, During this series, we are aiming to look at Christ and be refreshed with the greatness of who he is in, in a season where we're really tempted to look at everything else. So I've seen this happen in, in different ways in different seasons of my life. Before I came to Mercy, I was in college ministry up in the Raleigh Durham area. And I see now, right now in early December is exam time. So this is the way I'd see it play out. It would, um, I would call it a, a busy boast, a busy boast. So not to be confused with the humble brag, a busy boast goes a little bit like this on a college campus. So someone would go up to a college student around exam time and say, hey, what do you have going on? And, and they'd say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm honestly slammed. I've got an exam. I'm writing a paper. Um, I've got a lab that I'm in all day tomorrow. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm overloading hours. And, you know, it's just kind of been a really busy season for me. What about you? And the other person would say, that's so tough. I'm, I'm sorry. That's kind of been busy for you. I'm actually writing a novel right now. I'm starting a nonprofit. Um, I'm actually graduating tomorrow, two years early. And in the midst of all this, over the last three days, I've gotten a cat nap's worth of sleep. Um, but sorry about your busyness. And they would kind of one-up each other. That was the natural response when you asked someone how they were doing. They just thought of everything they were doing. I thought that that was a, a phenomenon around the college campus But since I left college ministry and came to minister among adults, I've seen that's not quite the case. So around the holidays, um, you might hear conversations that are eerily similar. So what do you have going on? Well, we, uh, we traveled up to West Virginia, then we took a train down to Florida, and uh, I'm in busy season, so I'm actually, meanwhile, working about 40 hours a day and, um, and really getting everything in and jam-packing. How about you? Um, that's, that's really tough. I'm sorry. It's been busy for you. We actually, uh, we took the train up the Oregon Trail across to the West Coast. We went down, we actually hiked down to California. We packed our kids into a submarine with our in-laws and then went around the Pacific. I'm sorry, that's been busy for you. And that's, I, I took it to an extreme, obviously, but you guys know this is the kind of conversations we have around the holidays is we talk about how busy we are. And you know what? As I've seen this play out in, in uh, ministry at Mercy, and I see young professionals who are worn out and young mothers who are worn out and then 40 and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds worn out, my perspective on it has changed a bit where I no longer see this as a, a busy boast but I see this now as a cry for help. I see it as an acknowledgement that I am restless 
and I need someone, I need someone to say something to assure my heart that there is rest to be found. I'm restless. I've no longer seen it as a sign of arrogance, but a sign of desperation, a cry out for rest. You know, I'm I am not by any means coming here giving a humble brag about not busy boasting. I am the chief of sinners in this arena. In fact, this morning I was right over there in Food Lion um, before the sermon, and I told the person who's checking me out, I'm preaching a sermon on rest. And we both cracked up as we looked down at my obnoxiously caffeinated drink that I was buying in order to preach the sermon on rest. So I need this desperately. I need rest just like you need rest. Yet I think because I'm so bad at this, the Lord has really had to force me to rest in the promises of Christ. Really find rest in him in the midst of the chaos. And I believe that can be yours today as well. That can be your rest. So here's my prayer for you. I want, I'm praying that every son, every daughter in here would experience the rest that is yours in Christ Jesus would experience the rest that is yours in Christ Jesus. So let's go to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, that's where we're gonna be in this morning. Matthew chapter one, right at the start of the New Testament. I'll start in verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, of all the ways that Matthew could have started his genealogy, he starts, or he could have started his book, his gospel, he starts with a genealogy. It's kind of like those long opening credits that we used to have in movies, but now we, we've kind of passed over them. You might get like the director or the writer, but we're jumping straight to the action. Matthew's given the whole opening credits. That's how we often see this passage. So it might be odd. You're thinking, I thought we were talking about rest. I thought we were going to go to a, a relevant passage, and now we're going to be going to a whole list of names. I think we see the opening uh, genealogy in Matthew, kind of like my wife and I uh, have this experience when we go to an Airbnb, and we step into a home that's not ours, and we see on the walls these, these frames, pictures of people that we don't know at all. Um, and, and so in order to make our experience comfortable, because it's kind of weird to have like a picture of Johnny who we don't know who's riding on a dolphin in, our, in the bedroom we're sleeping in, we just kind of say, all right, let's ignore it. Let's kind of rest in the room and pretend like you know, pretend like this is our home. Let's kind of go past this. I think that's how we see Matthew 1 genealogy often, which is why we kind of give it a skim and then get to the good stuff, Emmanuel and the virgin shall conceive at the end of Matthew 1. But what I want you to see is that there's no more relevant genealogy, no more relevant family tree for showing you your eternal future. And also there's no more relevant family tree for you to uh, see what God is giving you here and now. Because this genealogy, it's not just uh, Matthew wanted to come up with a list of names and show his smarts at the beginning of the gospel. Packed into this genealogy is a, is a summary of all of God's promises to his Old Testament people. All of God's promises to his Old Testament people. And all of them are culminating at the end in Christ Jesus. So go back to that Airbnb, uh, imagining those frames. Think about it if you're in that room and you don't recognize anyone, but then you kind of from on the corner of your eye, you spot a relative. 
Like, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, it catches your attention. You look at all the frames, you realize everyone actually is related to you. That, all those frames that at one point seemed really irrelevant now become really interesting. It's so what I want you to see in this genealogy, that through faith, you're connected to these people. You're connected to Abraham, and they have the same cry of restlessness that you're experiencing here and now. And God gives to them the promises of rest that you need now. And all of that is to be found in this glorious genealogy. Um, and so look at that first verse. You see that um, Matthew is going to summarize uh, Jesus in three titles. So he says that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Those three titles actually provide a roadmap for understanding the rest of the genealogy. So the first section of the genealogy is going to trace Jesus back to Abraham. The second section is going to trace Jesus back to David, which is also connected to Abraham. And then the third section is going to trace Jesus back to the exiles who were promised the Christ. So you see those three titles are going to be connected to that. What we're going to look at as we go through this genealogy, we got a lot to cover. Um, but if, if you're expecting me to go through every story in here, it's not happening. Unless you want to be here for the rest of the day, all you need to do to cover and revisit what's in this genealogy is read the whole Old Testament. If you just read the whole, whole Testament, you'll have it covered. What I'm going to do in 35 minutes is try to show you how God's promises and giving his people rest through his covenantal promises are for you here now. So here's where we're going to go. I'm going to show you three promises of rest for the restless. Three promises of rest for the restless. These are for you right now. And there's going to be one promise connected with each section. So a promise that God gives to Abraham, a promise God gives to David, and a promise that God gives to the exiles. All of these, I'm, I'm going to, uh, this isn't like a, a surprise turn. It's clear this is all about Jesus. So at the end, Jesus is going to fulfill all these promises, but I want to show you how this fulfills um, God's promises for you this morning. All right, so let's start in verse two, Matthew one, verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So the genealogy begins with Abraham. And what's important to know about Abraham, he shows up in the scene in Genesis chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are really showing how humanity has fallen away from the rest that was in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. In the, in the, at the very beginning when humanity was made, they just lived in rest because they were in the presence of their maker. But when sin entered in, in Genesis 3, they're separated from God. Now, right before Abram shows up on the scene in Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel. Humanity is trying to climb their way up to the heavens. And the Lord says, that's not going to work. That's not how we're going to do things. So he disperses them across the earth. And then he comes to Abram, who was later renamed Abraham, in Genesis 12 and says, instead of humanity making a great name for themselves, I'm going to make a name of you. So he comes to Abram, instead of humanity come to him, he goes down to Abram and he says, I'm going to make a name of you. This is in Genesis 12, and God gives the promise to Abraham of land. He says, I'm going to go give you a land. He gives them the promise of descendants, of a, a multitude of people that are going to come from him. And then he gives them the promise of blessing. So he's going to, he says, I'm going to bless you. And then through you, I'm going to bless 
all the nations. So land, descendants, and then blessing, relationship. Now, What's important to know, Paul says in, uh, in Romans 4 that Abram's body was as good as dead. I love, I love Paul, how he doesn't brush it up. He just said, he was about as good as dead. Which, what that meant was, these promises were not assumed of, uh, from Abram of, oh, of course you're going to make of me a great nation. He was about done with his life when God came to him and said, I'm going to make of you a nation. But here's how Abram and, and later Abraham responds to God's promise. Look at Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it him as righteousness. Do you see the contrast there coming right after the Tower of Babel? Humanity saying, I am going to make my way up to heaven. And then through Abraham, God says, I'm going to come to you. And the way that I'm going to make you righteous, just, upstanding, without fault, blameless. The way I'm going to make you righteous is by declaring you righteous through your belief in my promise. So that by faith in the promise of an heir, I'm going to make you righteous. God makes him righteous through faith. And so a natural question to ask as we're looking at the story of Abraham is who is that promise So let's continue and see how this promise of rest. So this is the first promise. We're looking at three promises of of God for his people. The first is God gives his people rest. God gives his people the promise of rest. All right, so let's continue going on. Uh, God gives the people the rest in his righteousness. That's the first promise. For you note takers, I want to make sure I say that right, because you're going to be going back later and saying, what what was number one? God gives his people rest in his righteousness. So let's continue on. Verse three, Abraham was the father of Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezra the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Something you should notice as we're going through this genealogy is that there are three women that are included in the genealogy. Now, at the time of writing genealogies, when uh, Jews were constructing genealogies at the time, including women just wasn't a natural thing to do because the, the inheritance went through the line of males. And so it really actually wasn't really necessary to include the women in the genealogy. And if you see it here, it also, it's the same for Matthew. It's not necessary at the time to include women in the genealogies. But see what Matthew does here in the genealogies. He goes out of his way to say that Rahab is in the genealogy, Tamar is in the genealogy, and Ruth are in the genealogy. He goes out of his way to say that these people were born of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Now, what's the significance of Matthew going out of his way to say that these people were included in the promise given to Abraham? Well, it's important to know that Tamar, uh, with whom Judah had Perez, Tamar was most likely a Canaanite. So she belonged to the people that dwelt in the land before Israel overtook the land. Uh, Rahab was uh, a woman, a prostitute, 
who was in Jericho when Israel came in and conquered the land, and she gave Israel favor. Ruth was a Moabite who her ancestors were actually the product of incest. And she's brought in, she actually becomes a descendant of David. So here's what's important to see in, in the three women that are included in this first section. God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, remember, to bless all the nations, to bring in all peoples. Because God said, I'm going to bless you, but through blessing you, I'm going to bless all the nations. God is going to make righteousness by faith available to all who would believe. So even in this section, Matthew's hinting at what's going to come at the end of Matthew. When he said, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, so that all peoples, male, female, Jew, gentle, Gentile, all are equal before Christ and all have righteousness through faith available to them. Okay, so here's, here's what this means for us here now. We too, by believing, get this, just as Abram believed in the promised heir, and was counted righteous by God. The way we become righteous is by believing in the promised heir of Abraham, Jesus Christ. By believing in him, his righteousness is given to us so that God declares us righteous. And this isn't just something that we're making up here now. Paul makes it explicit in Romans 4. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, as in it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look at what this produces. Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous through faith, we have peace, rest, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have rest and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God promises rest in his righteousness for you. And yet, some of you are restless this morning because you're still living in the courtroom. You're living your life in the courtroom even though God has already declared you righteous. Even though Jesus himself is in the courtroom who has submitted his righteous record on your behalf and paid the full sentence for your sins already, you're still living and hanging around in the courtroom. God has pardoned you, but you're living as if you're on parole. As if you're out for good behavior, but as soon as you turn this way or that, God says, I changed my mind, come back into the courtroom. But what righteousness does is it gives us rest and peace with God. It brings us out of the courtroom and into the home where God is no longer judge, but father. That's how we get rest. Stay out of the courtroom because Jesus is still there who is interceding for your behalf because you have a righteous advocate in the courtroom. You can stay out. You can live in the freedom of sons and daughters of God. Now, I wish we could stay here for the next 20 minutes, but we have about 2,000 years of history to cover in 20 minutes. So let's go on, all right? So Jesse was the father of David, the king, picking it up in verse six. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So David is going to take up the promise that was given to Abraham, so what happens uh, is that God's people travel out toward the land. They become 
captive in the land of Egypt. Through Moses, God leads them out of the land of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness because of their sin. And then through Joshua, God brings them into the land. Now their entrance into the land does not bring immediate rest because their sin that was in the Garden of Eden is still there. They are intermingling with the nations. They're actually are tossed into the most chaotic time in their history. But out of this chaos, remember, I'm summarizing a lot. Go read Exodus. Go read First and Second Samuel. It's great. Um, out of this chaos, God lifts up David, the king. And what he's going to do to David is he's going to pr- give the promises to Abraham, to the offspring of Abraham, who is David. This comes in 2 Samuel 7, in the covenant that God makes with David. And he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's what's happening. They're in the land, just like God promised to Abraham. But God is, going to get, God is going to dwell with his people. What he says is, I'm going to build you a house. David's going to have an eternal dynasty of kings who will reign on the throne. But then he says his offspring is going to build a house for me. What is God talking about? He's talking about the temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God with his people. This is what God's people, who truly got what it meant to be in a relationship with God, what they wanted more than anything. They wanted the presence of God. Now, you can see this. Uh, Moses actually was tempted in Exodus 33 to have all of Abraham's promised blessings apart from God's presence. So God was saying, I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to give you a multitude, but I'm going to just send my angel with you. And Moses says, no, 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 no. That's not what this is all about. He says, if you do not go with us, do not send us out from here. And then God says, my presence, this is Nexus 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is God's second promise. God promises rest in his presence. God promises rest in his presence. See, they didn't want all the blessings that were promised to Abraham apart from the rest that came from God's presence because they knew this is what we've been longing for ever since Eden when we were walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. That's where rest came from. And ever since we've lost it, this is the one thing we need for our hearts to truly, to truly find rest. See, if they could have had all the blessings in the world, but not the rest that came from God's presence, they didn't want it. And I wonder for you this morning, what is the, what is the one thing that is causing you restlessness? The one thing that you said, if I had that, then I could truly rest. Then my heart could take it easy. You see, I, I want to put before you, as we look at God's promise of rest in his presence, that Go there. In your mind, imagine if you did have all the PTO. Imagine if you did have that afternoon nap. Imagine if you did have everything you think would give you rest right now. If your whole life was situated around setting you up on the throne of repose, what would happen then if you didn't have God's presence with it? 
And then the reverse is true. Is if, if you don't have those things, if you don't have that nap, and I love naps, if you don't have that day off, if you don't have that breath and that silence, but God is with you, then you're brought into that kind of garden of Eden rest that you were always wired for. What's that one thing for you? God promises rest in his presence. Now let's move on. David, who was given this promise of rest, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. God promised to give David rest on every side from his enemy. And then he dwells with David in the temple. The question is, why do we need a son of David? This setup for David looks really great. Well, after this promise of rest from all of his enemies, here's what David discovers. The greatest enemy was not outside of him, but the greatest enemy was within. It only takes, 2 Samuel 7 is when the promise comes. It only takes four chapters, 2 Samuel 11, where David falls into sin. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he has her husband killed, Uriah, just to cover up her pregnancy. And after this, what you're going to see in the rest of the line of Judah is the consequences of David's greatest enemy, who was within. He had all the circumstances he could have ever wanted but sin was still within him. So if you continue, you'll see that uh, Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. What you need to know first is that you should go read about all these people that I don't have time to cover right now. First and second Chronicles focus on the line of Judah and the reign of Judah's kings, and they cover all of these people's lives. I'll give you a quick summary, even though it's worth to dive in for yourself. It's like a pinball machine. One king is good, and he walked in the ways of his father David. One is evil, and he did not walk in the ways of his, father evil, uh, of his father David. And over centuries and centuries and centuries, you see the effect of sin seeping through God's people. And what ends up happening is pure restlessness. They divide into two kingdoms. They blend into the world until ultimately they are overcome by their enemies, they give in to their sin, and God gives them up to their enemies. He gives them up to Babylon, who overtakes the land, and sends them out to exile. Out of that promised space that God gave to Abraham, he sends them out of it, so that they are removed from the blessings of Abraham. See, God promised rest in his presence but the enemy of sin was still in God's people. And I think that's something we need to grapple with this morning if you're restless, is that often our restlessness is self-inflicted. Our restlessness is self-inflicted. 
We turn toward ungodly pleasures to satisfy our soul. We wake up and instead of meeting with the Lord, we turn toward our screens. Instead of confessing our sins to community, we hide in isolation. We turn toward sins that we know are going to rob our joy. And we keep going and going and going and going until our hearts are hardened against God. And at the end of all that sin, we look up to God and say, God, why are you making me restless? And the reason is because you've given yourself up to sin and God will not give you sin or God will never give you rest so long as you dwell in your sin. You're trying to find rest apart from God and there is no such thing. Is your restlessness, how much of your restlessness, I should probably ask, is self-inflicted? Is self-inflicted, is turning away from the rest that God is offering you this morning and hardening your heart. And what the author of Hebrews says, he, he quotes God when he says, therefore they shall not enter my rest because they have hardened their heart. Are you experiencing that this morning? That was where Israel was. They were cast out from God's blessings. They could barely even feel the sunshine of God's blessing that he shined upon Abraham. And in the midst of this helplessness, in the midst of this hopelessness, in this restlessness, God gives them a promise. See, right on the cusp of exile, God speaks to his people through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Do you see the graciousness of God? When his people had hardened their hearts so much that they didn't even want to be with God, God says, I'm going to come after you just like I came after Abraham and called him by my grace. I'm going to come after you and I'm going to deal with your greatest enemy, sin. I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water. I'm going to wash you from all your uncleannesses and then so that your heart doesn't lead you back to sin just like it always has, I'm going to give you a new heart. And instead of dwelling you with you just by my presence, like I did in the temple, I'm going to do something even greater. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Not just Emmanuel, God with us. This is the spirit, God in us. He does the the amazing, the unthinkable. He turns our heart into his home. So that our heart is the place of rest. It's the place of the temple of the living God. As God's people were exiled, this is the promise that they were given. And yet the question uh, for the exiles, which is a good question for us to ask, is how does God do this? How does God give us rest even while we're stuck in sin? And I love, um, I love that uh, the prophet Ezekiel goes even more specific. He says, my servant David 
in Ezekiel 37, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. This is the third promise that God gives to his people. God promises rest in his deliverance. God promises rest in his deliverance. God is not just going to protect them on all sides from their external enemies. He's going to sprinkle them with clean water and deliver them for their greatest enemy, sin. And how is he going to do it? He's going to set above them his servant, David, who will lead them into peace, into a covenant of peace. The exiles, probably the way that the exiles would have seen this is not that David was actually going to retake the throne. You know, you see David is up in verse six and then verse 11 is the time of this prophecy during the exile. David was long dead. He had been in the tomb for a very long time. So they weren't thinking, Ezekiel saying, God's really going to raise up David to lead over Israel. The way they would have seen this, and it's prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament prophets, they would have seen that Ezekiel was talking about the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. This word anointed Christ, Messiah, it became a synonym for the heir of David who would take up David's throne and reign over his people and reestablish peace. They would have seen this on the cusp of exile and thought, the Christ is coming. And when the Christ comes, he's going to make an everlasting covenant of peace with us, which means he's not going to let this be like the old covenant, which could be disrupted by our sin which could be thrown off by our own mess. No, he's going to ensure by giving us a new heart that this is going to be an eternal covenant of peace. The King of David is coming. And we see this in the final section. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now this is, just so you know, this is about the last name that is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. It's around, Zerubbabel was around a time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a time when they thought that God might really fulfill his promises. But you see at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel's fallen right back into the sins that got them in that trouble. They're intermarrying with the nations. And so after that time of hope and then being let short of their hopes, they kind of go into an an arena where you don't even see these names. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Don't you see that this whole genealogy is like a huge funnel containing all of God's promises for rest for his people. And it's narrowing and narrowing with the years and centuries and centuries and centuries of restlessness for for God's people. And at the end of all these centuries, it culminates in Jesus, the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. See, Jesus is going to fulfill God's promise of rest 
in righteousness for his people. Because in every way that we sin, he's not going to sin. He's going to live perfectly so that when we believe in him, God gives us his perfect righteousness. Jesus is going to fulfill God's promise to give us rest in his presence, not by sending down glory into the temple, but by becoming the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, showing us his glory, glory as of the only son, full of grace and truth. Jesus is going to fulfill God's promise to give us rest in his deliverance because he's not going to come down and just hand us the law. He's going to pay the full penalty for our sin, raised from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death so that our hearts could go from death to life. Jesus is going to fulfill all of these like a big funnel going toward it. It all is pointing to the Christ who gives us rest. And Matthew draws us out even further. And one of the first things he says about Jesus, Matthew chapter one, he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see that? Jesus is going to give us his righteousness. He's going to save us from our sins, delivering us from the power of sin in our hearts. Jesus is going to do all of this by giving us the rest of his presence, by becoming Emmanuel, God with us. All the promises of God. This is what Paul says. All the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Will God give us rest? Maybe that's what you're asking this morning as you hear a great, you know, this, this sermon about this great rest that God promises us in Christ and you're still feeling this restlessness. You may be asking, will God give me the rest of his righteousness? You are still through your career, through the way that you're parenting, through the way that you're trying to earn the approval of your friends. You're still in the courtroom and saying, if only I can do enough then I'll rest. And you're hearing this say, will God give me the rest of his righteousness? Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I have everything I want, actually. I'm getting everything I want. I'm having all my family situation and my job situation is great. I'm getting all these blessings, but I'm not getting God's presence and I'm restless. Will God give me the rest of his presence? And maybe you are stuck in sin. You're coming here this morning, and honestly, you have no hope of leaving this morning in a different place than you came. Thinking it's just going to go on and on and on. The way I have been sinning against God is going to continue. And maybe that's you. If you're saying, I've, I've drifted far from the Lord, and I feel like the exiles where I don't even sense any of the presence of God and his blessings, you're saying, Will God, will God give me the rest of his deliverance? And what Matthew is showing us here, what Paul says, is that the answer is yes in Christ Jesus. Yes, God will give you the gift of his righteousness so that you can leave the courtroom and be in the home as a son or daughter. Yes, in Christ Jesus, God will give you his presence because remember he promised, I will never leave you. 
I will never forsake you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So even when circumstances don't change, if I'm in the circumstances, then you can have rest. Yes, will God give you deliverance from sin this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ? Will God give you deliverance from sins if you're stuck in habitual sin? Will God give you rest from and deliverance in Christ Jesus? And the answer is yes, he will. If you turn to him and see that Christ paid the full penalty for your sin, he took on all the sins of God's people. And that's a big list. All the sins of God's people brought him to the cross and it brought him to his final breath. And yet in his resurrection, he showed that he was powerful, mighty to deliver you this morning, no matter where you are. This morning, sin has no dominion over you if you are in Christ Jesus. What Colossians 3 says is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let his rest rule this morning. So whenever throughout this Advent season, as you're asked, how you doing? And the first instinct is to go to the areas of your life that are causing restlessness and busyness and hopelessness. Let it be a reminder that God promises rest for you here and now. That he is enough, that he is good, and that he is your peace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the rest that you've given us who should not have a taste of rest for all of eternity. We should have gone on in our restlessness forever and ever and ever and ever, separated from your presence, separated from the promises of God. Strangers to the covenants, without hope, without God in the world, but you came. Just like you came to Abraham, just like you came to David, just like you reached out to the exiles and showed them there is a king of rest, a prince of peace coming for you. You did that for our hearts. And God, for those who aren't there this morning, would you give them by your power, by your Holy Spirit, give them rest. Give them the unimaginable rest of not only having God with them, but God in them by the Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We rest in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.